On this episode of The Playbook, I have two-time guest, Paul Rabel, the incredible pro lacrosse player, but co-founder and CMO of the Premier Lacrosse League. And we're going to talk about what he and Jim Brown have in common and how we apply their skills and capabilities, knowledge and desire to building one of the greatest, fastest growing leagues in America. Join me for all of this and more on The Playbook. This is The Playbook where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is The Playbook. We have a special group that gets to come on The Playbook twice, 700 episodes. Here's my third guest ever to come on twice, Paul Rabel, pro lacrosse all-star player, co-founder and CMO of the Premier Lacrosse League, which has come a long way since the last time Paul and I have spoken. Welcome to the Playbook, Paul. Dave, it's great to be back. I'm surprised, very surprised and humbled that that I'm one of three repeat guests, but uh, yeah, it's a blessing. It's awesome. I'm going to start sending out those robes like on Saturday Night Live with Chevy Chase and they have the, the special room for you. It's going to be a virtual room, but it'll be really cool. Dude, 700 plus episodes, man. Talk about grind. That's unbelievable. Congratulations. I'm consistent. You know, I I wish you had the talent in sports to apply my consistency with any success, but I'm still just an average division three athlete, uh, unlike a world player like you. But meanwhile, you know, there are a lot of characteristics that I've utilized to be successful in business. Although I didn't have what I call a quantum nature to be a hyper athletic person to reach the levels of Warren Moon or Paul Rabel. But I do see a lot of the things I learned on the field that are applicable in in branding myself and raising money, helping people, uh, the leadership qualities that I've learned. What, as you have ventured from, you know, an all-star in what you do on the field to an all-star off the field, you've accelerated the growth even during the most challenging times uh, with the PLL, able to get distribution, unbelievable marketing and exposure and awareness, and most importantly, financing. So let's start there. What attributes or lessons did you take from the field that applied when you went through, I think, the biggest challenge of your life, which is raising money? <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, it's a loaded question because there is, uh, there's so much that goes into it and there's not a blueprint out there. It's, it's actually a lot like sport in that regard, where if there was, everyone would do it and do it well, and everyone would win a championship and become a dynasty. So every case is a little bit unique. And I think if I were to distill it to a few features that cross over characteristically, it's competitiveness. And if you think about pro athletes, they're the 1% of the 1%. If you think about industry leaders in business, same goes. Um, There are a ton of fantastic business people and entrepreneurs out there, fantastic athletes out there. And, uh, you know, you could talk about the competitive nature and even the grit and work ethic that goes into making it to the top. There is a little bit of nature. Most of it is nurture. And, uh, you know, we can say, hey, it requires a lot of work. And that means consistent work, like doing 700 plus podcasts, waking up at four o'clock in the morning. But that happens over time. And we are a world of instant gratification. And we want to celebrate the founders on the cover of Entrepreneur Inc. magazine. And we think that it happens over the, overnight. None of it does. So I think the crossover skills, if you look at world-class athletes, formerly, you know, 
an Alex Rodriguez or currently a Steph Curry, uh, Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. Like these are the athlete prodigies, one of a kind, those transferable skill sets lend themselves well to business. Number two though, is you really have to educate yourself. So this is an entirely new arena for a lot of athletes to understand business. And there is a stereotype attached to athletes uh, coming over into business as dumb jocks or just athletes, just entertainers. You have to work twice as hard to make half the progress um, because we're starting later. Uh, but that competitiveness, the grit, and then tied to educating yourself, the intellectual curiosity, I think are transferable skills. The last thing I'll add, because fundraising is a daunting process, you get 20 to 30 no's per one maybe. Um, athletes tend to be used to that repetitive sense of failure, uh, whether it's a lacrosse player shooting 15 or 20%, which is considered all pro or a baseball player hitting two or three out of 10, you're used to that and have that developed resilience, uh, which is required to go raise capital. One of the other things that interests me, uh, because you have built your own brand, you know, I've been on your early day podcast as well. <laughs> and, and, you know, understanding community, when I looked at PLL and I had been involved in rugby for years, uh, trying to get rugby into the Olympics and then working with the sevens with Lyle and, and Hodges and with the U S now being on the Olympic committee, looking at rugby as a sport. And I saw so many parallels between kind of the second tier sport of rugby, rugby, which is a world renowned sport, uh, you know, very popular outside of the United States. And I saw the same similarities when you were going out on the road onto your road show. And I was gonna, you know, look at and wonder, how's he gonna separate himself from, you know, some of these other sports, the secondary football leagues and, and rugby and a few others out there that have not, they haven't got the traction uh, in success that you've had, why do you think, or where is that subtlety of success of how you have been able to have the success that, for example, rugby just hasn't been able to get, even though it's a world popular sport? That's uh, it's a great question. Um, and I think that, like you said, rugby has been successful globally, has struggled domestically in the U S uh, lacrosse is most popular in the world in the United States. It's a North American game. It was created by Native Americans in the Iroquois, but formerly the Haudenosaunee. Um, there are world-class you know, players in our league from the Onondaga uh, that grew up and still live in the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, it is Canada's national sport of the summer. And there are 2 million participants now at the youth level in lacrosse and 10 million fans. So I bring those stats up because the million number sounds large, but relative to the big four, or even if you want to you know, parse it out to the big three in pro sports, it's not that the numbers of basketball or, or soccer participation. However, we think about pro sports in two ways. It's great to have growing participation, which we have because brands are excited about that and they want to invest in the next generation of athletes. But sports are sports entertainment. Sports are show business. And we really committed to that as part of our thesis around, okay, we have and can acknowledge trends, but I think formerly where sports ran into issues is they were looking at pool of participants equal number of tickets sold equal number of viewers. And then they could 
get more sophisticated and identify critical mass or inflection points of getting there. But in the end, we look at our league as net new fans. And what are the trends to capture a larger sports fan base that exists in the United States, North America, and globally? And then how do we tap into that? A lot of investors will ask you, I think, a really astute question, which is, why not two years ago? Why not two years from now? In our world, and I think in the world of rugby in North America, and you can really name any team or individual sport outside of the big four, um, is that new media, social and digital in the age of the internet has created opportunity that didn't exist without deep, deep pockets and influence across major networks. So sports in the 1900s and early 2000s traded on radio, print and television. And you had to either have 10 million to 20 million bucks to get there and bet that sum in one year, or you needed ratings, historical ratings that networks would want to bet on. So you're screwed because if, if you'd never had a pro game before, you can't show the ratings. So you got to drop a bunch of cash and that's high risk. So a lot of investors are going to take that bet. So we built our league on you know, the modernity of social and the ability to say, hey, to, to build a solid business, if you have a thousand core fans and, and you build a compelling product that they're going to want to come back to, there's something there. And we have 2 million. So, so how do we recognize the net new strategy, but reach our net new fans by talking about our sport organically and authentically? And we believe, and we have investors that believe that lacrosse not only services its fans, a really exciting sport has been around for centuries, but it's also has an ability to to reach that inflection point and pop if it's introduced to the right sports fans across the right mediums at the right time. You know, it's really funny because some of the people who have invested uh, in you and your company, you know, came to me and asked me what I thought, you know, coming from where I'm located, as well as my experience with being commissioners of leagues and raising money for leagues and all of that. And I said, there was two reasons I thought it would be successful. The first was, you know, not to suck up to you, buddy, but Paul Rabel, I bet on the jockey a lot of times. And I said, Paul Rabel's my guy, so you can invest in him. I'm not really <laughs> sure too much about the business, but why I like the investment is, and I, I said this to two of your big investors, I said, Dr. Pimple Popper. And they said, what? I said, if Dr. Pimple Popper can have more subscribers than the entire Pro Football Hall of Fame, which I have marketed and worked with for over a decade, you know, my business partner being on the board, the marketing board and the head of that when Merlin Olson passed away, rest in peace. But if Dr. Pimple Popper understands the low barrier of entry and can access a community and engage a community and grow a community from popping pimples, then one of our most popular sports in America, something that applies to a genre of athletes now that just can't be UFC fighters or boxers or NFL stars, uh, there's much more opportunity to play in high school and college and to excel than being six foot five and you know 245 pounds and run a four three. This is going to work because there's a big audience to engage, and two million people turn to four million, and Paul by himself just with his trick videos, was able to engage 
an audience worldwide, one that we still, I don't think, can fathom the size, scope, and scale of what 4.6 billion people accessible to an individual doing trick shots or popping pimples or Dave Meltzer doing the playbook. And I still, being a marketing guru, I can't even fathom like how this is all happening and look at the numbers of you know millions of people. You're like, wait, how is this possible? I'm a middle-aged mutant turtle. If the middle-aged mutant turtle can do it, Paul Rabel and the PLL can. On that premise is why I think people should invest in you. But can you explain to me your experience of building a community? Because you know everyone out there, whether you're pop popping pimples or wrapping presents or the head of a league, should learn what you've been able to do to build an engaged community and accelerate it so that we can build and monetize an audience from that community. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a uh, I, well, one. I, I really appreciate you um, validating our business, and then two, uh, your reference to me and and my co-founder, who's the the far more uh, sophisticated related to business and effective uh, executive in our company. My older brother Mike, uh, he's our CEO, so I, I get to kind of run around and think creatively and and be strategic on product um, as well as marketing. And Mike's behind the scenes building a real company. Um, I would say that we think about social media, not too dissimilar to exactly what you said and, and how the world views it. It's modern media. It's the new form of media. It's where the most scale is. However, it is getting smarter like the Google search bar does on a daily basis. So trends update, algorithms update monthly, weekly, daily. Because it has reached critical mass in the world, people's psychological adopt, adoption of the product has also changed. When I was first on social 12 years ago, when I had graduated and figured out that, damn, I get access to a lacrosse audience that otherwise I would have never had access to with just traditional media. Let me communicate with them. It was so novel at the time. It's embarrassing to look at my old tweets and Instagram posts because I would just say, hey, headed to the gym this morning. And the idea that you could see what you know, aspirational athletes were doing or entertainers or celebrities, that was worth following them. Now, all of our social profiles with almost everyone in the world on it, they treat it like their own identification card. And they're mindful of who they're following. They're mindful of who's following them and they're mindful of their comments they're putting out there. Like this is published content. And so that has shifted audience growth opportunities. It was a lot easier to grow an audience 10 years ago than it is today. I think that social media is quickly just becoming the new version of traditional media. And you're going to see fewer people uploading to Instagram in feeds and why they're adopting things like Instagram stories. And you're gonna see more brands and more properties invest in feed, which is gonna feel more like a network and kind of feels more contrived. So the TikTok benefit is that they've really adopted and uh, gravitated towards raw uploads and, and alleviated some of the pressure that's tied to it. So that's on a tangent. What we think about kind of given all that is, is how can we be really smart around social and, and how can we continue to grow, but grow organically in the right way. There's a lot of like bots out there and services that help you increase your engagement, increase your followership, but that over time will erode your outcome on the algorithm, which is your total organic reach ability to show up for people who want you to show up. So I think that the last thing I'll say on this, 
in the in the wider macro impact that we're seeing take place with networks and them now investing disproportionate resources into their streaming platforms, take NBC pulling sports off of cable after 2021 and investing their live properties onto Peacock, 200 million plus subscribers on Netflix. COVID has been an accelerator to that. I think bandwidth has improved in a major way and consumer confidence in putting their credit cards down has as well. There's cord cutting and there's cord nevers. What that has led to is that you have to now as a business go where your consumer is. Previously in our world, Dave, we told them where to show up. This is where the game's being broadcasted and it's live here. And if you don't tune in live, you're not going to see it. Then SportsCenter came around and people were like, damn, at least I get to catch some highlights. But prior to SportsCenter, if you didn't catch it live, you were toast. Catch it in the newspaper the next day. Now with social media, and then with the multitude of non-exclusive of broadcasts across streamers and network TV, you saw the NFL playoffs, live game on CBS, live game on Nickelodeon, and you could catch it, what I call delayed live across social. So what you have to do is kind of reinvent the monetization, know how to protect your IP, but also get all of the content out across the mediums. Know that it's never going to be how it was, where it's a singular Nielsen rating and your CPM's high, and that's how you're going to drive your media rights. It's, it's everywhere, but you got to be where the people are. And I think that level of humi humility and understanding and then driving sophistication. I mean, I'll say one, one more thing. When companies were first hiring social media, actually, they weren't hiring social media experts. They were taking their web team or taking someone in marketing and saying, now you're running social media. There is still a, a pretty significant vacancy around social media experts or directors of content that's out there. That only that that pool of talent is only going to grow, but I'll say this that it's one of those things that traditional marketing everyone thinks they're a good marketer because they know how to see an ad and judge whether it's good or not, but if you give them a, a blank canvas and say go create an ad, very few people can do that. And I think that's the case when it comes to social media and sports properties. Yeah, and drive sales and monetize it. I think I've always over 35 years made that a true focus of my own marketing and branding efforts. Even though I had the biggest names in sports and entertainment, it was still a lot of people. Well, I think you're monetize. one of the best at it. <laughs> I work yeah, on it. Yeah, I mean, look, because that's the other thing. I mean, even the NBA is trying to figure out, well, damn, our strategy was really good because we went the opposite route of the Major League Baseball. And we didn't slap on the wrist or certainly find groups that were taking our highlights because we viewed the net exposure of the NBA being everywhere is great. And now you have ownership saying, hey, well, like a lot of that content we pay to produce and it's super valuable. How are we monetizing this? And that's something that we had conversation around early on is you have a mind for monetization of media. And that is also very new. And a lot of agencies are figuring it out or trying to figure it out as well as sales teams. Yeah, it's amazing. Last quick question. It's a two-parter. Number one, obviously, during the pandemic, we pulled all the live audiences away. So I want to, one, just have you touch on where you think there's a pent-up demand of people showing up live. And then two, how gambling is going to intersect into lacrosse as it is every other sport and where on the scale is it going to be of importance uh, to the league? Yeah, well, I'll start backwards. Uh, sports gambling and gaming, as they call it, is of utmost importance for us. It's something that we were able to turn on in 2020. Uh, so we got national and local regulation approval. Uh, we had a sponsor in DraftKings as our corporate partner, but we were non-exclusive with all of the authorized gaming operators called AGOs. And we had lines everywhere, which was great. Um, the next iteration is getting live odds up. And so that requires a better understanding of our product 
and more people with the AGOs that can be predictive around live odds, which basically live in game. So a goal happens and then boom, a new odd pops up on your screen on DraftKings or FanDuel for the next face-off that happens in 20 seconds and people are playing that. That that increases watch time as well as uh, performance. So here's how we're seeing it. Uh, I think there are 23 states right now that have approval um, and that's in-state betting. That number is growing at a clip that's pretty substantial. So as a tour-based model, which we've talked about before on your show, we have the ability to just drop into those markets. And so if you think about what our strategies are, it's media first. How do we position our games to be on network television and then capitalize with our Peacock deal we just announced? And then number two is let's play in some sports betting markets. Um, that's a way to get net new fans to my earlier point. And so we have a whole strategy team that's working with authorized gaming operators as well as uh, local and national jurisdictions. Related to the pandemic, um, I think there is a ton of pent up demand. I had an opportunity to spend time with Tom Rothman, who is the chairman of Sony Motion Picture Group, grew up playing lacrosse, um, spends a lot of time on our business. And what we're seeing even in China a few weeks ago uh, with lowered... Um, uh, or say, increased access and capacity at theaters, they set box office records, not just pandemic records, box office records a few weeks ago in China for their native release. And, uh, and that sends signals all the way west around, okay, when theaters start opening up at certain capacities, people, because we've been in this pandemic, cannot wait to get out there because there's a huge diversity component. There's a tribalism component. There's community. And I think we've all felt pretty pent up at home. I know I have. And uh, being able to get back out and experience a live product is something that we're, look, we're looking forward to. Our presented by partners, Ticketmaster, and they have done a fantastic job of keeping us aware of sports properties that are allowing fans on site towards certain capacities, the PGA Tour being one of them. And that's tracking at events that they're having down in South Florida that at a, at a capacity that's not full, they're still selling more tickets than they did in 2018 and 2019. So those are strong indicators. Oh, yeah, excellent. Well, I'm going to finish up by giving you one last compliment, my friend. Uh, and that is two of my favorite athletes in the world, both in my opinion, and I wish you guys were the same age because I'd like to know which one of you would have been better playing. But uh, Jim Brown and Paul Rabel are two of my favorite athletes, both the world's best lacrosse players at their time and in their age. It's kind of like the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James uh, all over again. And I'm not well, sure everyone knows about Jim Brown, but look it up. He was an incredible Syracuse player. Yeah, well, if, if I'm be based on um... – you know, kind of age and difference and generation. If I'm the LeBron James, I don't know that LeBron says this directly, but Michael Jordan is better and Jim Brown was better than me. Um, and, uh, so and you know, I know it's different eras and stuff, but he's, uh, he's an advisor to our business. They live out here in LA, him and his wife, Monique, and they're doing some fantastic things for, for the sport from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, as well as just Native American history. It's so awesome. Well, Paul Rabel, thank you so much. You need no luck, but continue the great work with the PLL and you and your brother. Please, you're welcome to be the first four-time guest, five-time guest. I don't care. I'm sending you a robe. Can't wait to see you in person. <laughs> this is Dave Meltzer with Paul Rabel here on Entrepreneurs, The Playbook.